Faith, hope, and love, the ecumenical trio of virtues. That densely phrased title might benefit from a little preliminary unpacking. We may begin with St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and the 13th chapter. For many long years in Britain, that was among the favorite passages of scripture set to be learned both by Sunday school pupils and even by the children in day school. We used, of course, the authorized version of scripture, the King James Bible. There may be some of you here too who remember how that passage begins in that translation. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove all mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. And on it goes. Charity believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Until we reach the last verse of that chapter. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Faith, hope, and charity. Now, the linguistic nuances have shifted in recent years. And so instead of charity, we now have to say simply love. Faith, hope, and love. I'm calling them a trio. That may sound a bit too simple. So let me read to you another Pauline passage where all three do in fact figure, but intertwined within a more complex argument. I'm thinking of the first five verses of the fifth chapter of the letter to the Romans, reading this time from the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Listen for faith, hope, and charity here, and some other words that are going to keep recurring in their connection. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. Notice the connections made among our three terms there of faith, hope and love and with such words as grace and endurance, character and glory, they're all connected in that passage. And notice also the discrete Trinitarianism of that passage and its implied Christocentrism. Those two key features, Trinitarianism and Christocentrism, will be found to belong to our virtues both as to the content 
and as to the act of all three, faith, hope, and love. I shall also be finding help in the letter to the Romans to make respective matches between our three ecumenical virtues and three rites of the church that were instituted by the Lord himself. Faith will be matched with holy baptism. Hope will be matched with the Lord's prayer. And love will be matched with the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, with the Lord's Supper. Faith and holy baptism, hope and the Lord's prayer, love and the Lord's Supper. In my title then, I'm speaking of a trio of virtues. A word about that word, virtues. In broad human understanding, a virtue is a good habit of action. And a classical list includes temperance, fortitude, justice, and prudence as what are called cardinal virtues. Christian teaching distinguishes and highlights our three virtues, faith, hope, and love, as directly infused gifts from God, charisms, which we are called and are expected to exercise. Gifts from God. Appropriately, they are designated theological virtues. I call them an ecumenical trio. By that I mean that they are bestowed on all individual Christians and on the communities in which they gather. More especially, I mean that the exercise of those virtues has been seen as the route to the attainment of that corporate unity towards which the ecumenical movement in our time points and works. Meeting in Brazil, Porto Alegre, in the year 2006, the Ninth Assembly of the World Council of Churches unanimously adopted an ecclesiological text prepared for it by the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches, called to be the one church, an invitation to the churches to renew their commitment to the search for unity and to deepen their dialogue. And one particular passage in that text is of special interest in connection with our trio of faith, hope, and love. Let me give you some fragmentary quotations here. While the life of the church as new life in Christ is one, yet it is built up through different charismata and ministries. Some differences express God's grace and goodness, and they must be discerned in God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Other differences divide the church. And these must be overcome through the Spirit's gifts of faith, hope, and love, so that separation and exclusion do not have the last word. God calls his people in love to discernment and renewal on the way to the fullness of koinonia. 
As an exercise in mutual accountability and mutual responsibility, the churches in that text are invited to engage in the hard task of giving a candid account of the relation of their own faith and order to the faith and order of other churches. The churches are called to address recurrent matters in fresh, more pointed ways, being challenged to recognize areas for renewal in their own lives and new opportunities to deepen relations with those of other traditions. And finally, noting the progress made in the ecumenical movement, we encourage our churches to continue on this arduous yet joyous path trusting in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose grace transforms our struggles for unity into the fruits of communion. Each member church was called upon by that full assembly of the World Council of Churches to respond to the text and the series of questions that it posed concerning themselves and their mutual relations. And it was expected that their responses would be coordinated by faith and order with a view to the 10th Assembly of the World Council of Churches, which takes place next year, 2013, in Korea. Notice especially then that the divisions among Christians and their communities are to be overcome through the Spirit's gifts of faith, hope, and love, so that separation and exclusion do not have the last word. My plan in these lectures is to examine these three gifts of the Spirit as they are received and exercised in three focal acts of Christian worship, with a view especially to their unifying energy, and to show how our understanding and observance of three rites or practices instituted by the Lord himself can move us towards unity in faith, hope, and love. I'm going to match faith with holy baptism, hope with the Lord's Prayer, and love with the Lord's Supper. While addressing largely an audience of Baptists with whom I have talked already in the past, I shall speak as a lifelong Methodist. I was baptized at the age of six weeks in our Blucher Street Church in Barnsley, Yorkshire. I'm intellectually and aesthetically shaped by the Wesley brothers, the often prosaic John and the always poetic Charles. And I've been an ordained minister of the Methodist Church of Britain since 1967. And as you heard, I've got multilateral ecumenical experience through membership in the Faith and Order Commission of the World Council of Churches, where I remember the contribution of Baptist members and I have some bilateral experience, especially in the international dialogue between the World Methodist Council and the Roman Catholic Church. And I chaired on that commission from the Methodist side from 1986 to 2011. And I'm aware that conversations are going on between the Baptist World Alliance and the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. The first virtue then in my trio which I will expound to in relation to holy baptism, is faith. Or should I say I will expound faith in relation to holy baptism? 
What I mean is I want to set the two in their mutual interactive relationship. So here we begin, faith and holy baptism. And inevitably, we begin with historical and theological controversy. Those whom we now call, and who call themselves Baptists, emerge around the time of the Reformation. The reading, their reading of Western Christendom showed them a multitudinist church whose failings could be attributed, at least in part, to the indiscriminate practice of baptism. The defenders of the centuries-old practice of administering baptism to the infant children of Christians nicknamed their opponents Anabaptist for presuming to baptize again such people if and when in later years they came to a personal faith that they could profess. It was the common teaching that a person might properly receive baptism only once. Of course, the Anabaptists considered that the baptism they administered was in fact the unique baptism, so that they might properly be more fittingly called Baptist without the Ara. I know it's a bit more complicated. Anyway, that will do for now. The disparity between the two camps came to be formulated in terms of infant baptism and believer baptism. Along the way, we shall come to ecumenical attempts to reconcile the two positions, or at least to accommodate them, paying particular attention to the chapter on baptism in the so-called Lima text of 1982, Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry, and developments in that process. But we must begin with the beginnings of baptism. I should say that I was closely associated with the production of this text, and for a good 10 years after it, I was asked to give talks about it in various countries in the world, so much so that my dreams started to take place against a, a gray background and have wavy green lines passing through. The last verses of Matthew's Gospel present the risen Lord as instituting baptism. So Baptists are quite correct to term the rite a dominical ordinance, an ordinance from the Lord himself. Jesus came and said to his 11 disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, to the close of the age. Or as it says in the so-called longer ending of Mark's gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The Acts of the Apostles recount that process of evangelical preaching and faithful response as it began in Jerusalem where Peter concludes his Pentecost sermon in this way, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all those that are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thus, the Lima text is quite correct 
when it declares baptism upon professional, personal profession of faith is the most clearly attested pattern in the New Testament. And I may perhaps quietly reveal that it was I, as a member of the drafting group, the editorial team for that document, who insisted that that point should be made in this text. What did the Lima text say more systematically about baptism? Baptism, it says, is administered with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Its meaning was spelled out by BEM under five heads. We might rather call them five benefits. Participation in Christ's death and resurrection. Conversion, pardoning, and cleansing. The gift of the Spirit. Incorporation into the body of Christ and the sign of the kingdom. And crucially, for our present purposes, baptism was declared to be both God's gift and our human response to that gift. It looks towards a growth into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, quoting Ephesians. The necessity of faith for the reception of salvation, embodied and set forth in baptism, is acknowledged by all churches. Personal commitment is necessary for responsible membership in the body of Christ. That was paragraph 8 on the baptism part of this text. Thus, baptism entails both grace and faith. We might say that it is a focal point or perhaps a decisive moment in what is from God's side the process of grace and what is from the human side the process of faith. God has been preparing the person for the gift of salvation. And now, in and through baptism, God administers the seal of the Spirit, long a traditional name for baptism. The recipient has been moving towards belief and now professes it openly. Beyond baptism, God will continue to bestow grace to suit the condition and circumstances of the recipient and the believer will expect to grow in grace through the exercise of faith in a loving direction after the pattern of Christ, into whose salvific death and resurrection he or she has been baptized with a view to the conquest of sin and the conduct and enjoyment of a qualitatively new and God-pleasing life. The sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans gets to the heart of the matter. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so on. My location of baptism within a process of grace and faith fits the responses of the churches to BEM. And it may help to settle the dichotomy between infant baptism and believer baptism. I shall return to that matter in a moment. Meanwhile, I think I've done enough to show why St. Augustine called, could call baptism the sacramentum fidei, the sacrament of faith. Now we come explicitly to faith as a virtue, a divine gift that is to be exercised. We have to speak of faith in two ways, which may be summarized in two related Latin phrases, 
the fides quae creditur and the fides qua creditur. That is the faith which is believed and the faith by which one believes. Or we can say the content of the faith and the act of faith. That's perhaps the easiest way. The content of the faith and the act of faith. Let me illustrate from John Wesley's letter to a Roman Catholic, written from Dublin in July 1749, in an effort to allay Catholic opposition to the evangelistic work of Methodists in Ireland. Wesley begins with the tenderest regard, he says, in which he must hold his addressee on account of their being creatures of the same God and their both being redeemed by God's own Son and studying to have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. In the two main sections of the letter, Wesley then sets out the belief of a true Protestant and the practice of a true Protestant, making the most of the commonalities between Protestants and Catholics. The content of the faith is presented in terms of an exposition upon the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, bringing out the Chalcedonian teaching concerning the person and natures of Christ and the traditional understanding of Christ's threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. The act or attitude of faith gets embodied in love towards God and neighbor. Works of piety and works of mercy is how Wesley phrases it. And together, he says, these constitute the old religion, true primitive Christianity. And on that shared basis, Wesley says to his Catholic reader, if we cannot as yet think alike in all things, at least we may love alike. And so they shall be kind to one another in thought, word, and deed. And finally, endeavor to help each other on in whatever we are agreed leads to the kingdom. So far as we can, he says, let us always rejoice to strengthen each other's hands in God. Or listen again to how John Wesley in his sermon on the Trinity without going into speculation on the internal structure of the Godhead, weaves together the content and the act of faith in respect of what he calls the three-one God. This is what he says. The knowledge of the three-one God is interwoven with all true Christian faith, all vital religion. I know not how anyone can, call, can be a Christian believer till he hath, as St. John says, the witness in himself till the Spirit of God witnesses with his spirit that he is a child of God. That is, in effect, he goes on, till God the Holy Ghost witnesses that God the Father has accepted him through the merits of God the Son. And having this witness, he honors the Son and the Blessed Spirit, even as he honors the Father. In what shape or form is faith to be confessed, especially in crucial connection with baptism? Almost all churches in the West, whether Catholic or Protestant, employ the so-called Apostles' Creed in their baptismal rites. And the Orthodox churches of the East favor the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, but there's no opposition to be seen between those two. The point is to ensure that the faith being confessed in baptism is precisely, precisely the God-given faith of the church, not simply an opinion of the person being baptized. Stephen Harmon, in a chapter written on Baptist tradition for the Oxford Book of 
Ecumenical Studies, which I'm in process of editing, reports that when, on July the 5th, 1905, the Baptist World Alliance met in London for its first Congress, its newly elected president, Alexander McLaren, invited participants to demonstrate Baptists' relation to the larger Christian tradition by reciting together the Apostles' Creed. Not, he said, as a piece of coercion or discipline, but as a simple acknowledgement of where we stand and what we believe. Harmon elaborates, the early Baptists received from the pre-Reformation church the canon of scripture and the core doctrines of Orthodox Christianity in light of which they read this canon. These gifts combined with their unique historical experiences as a socially embodied community to form a quintessentially Baptist pattern of faith and practice at the core of which is ancient Catholicity. Early Baptist confessions, he says, understood Baptist indebtedness to these gifts with language and concepts drawn directly from the ecumenical creeds, Anabaptist confessions, the Anglican 39 articles, and the reformed Westminster Confession. Harmon instances two 17th century Baptist confessions of faith in illustration of this Baptist reception of the creedal and confessional gifts of the rest of the church. The second London confession of the English particular Calvinistic Baptists and the Orthodox Creed of the English general Arminian Baptists, 1678. And the latter of those two reproduces the texts of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and encourages Baptists to receive and believe them. More recently, says Harmon, Baptist hymnals have functioned as key facilitators of receptive ecumenism. They have helped Baptists to sing and receive the theologies of patristic and medieval Christianity, the Protestant Reformation, and a wide denominational variety of more recent hymn writers, including post-Reformation Catholics as well as Protestants of all stripes. The contemporary British Baptist, Paul Fides, suggests that Baptists might incorporate the broad contours of the Catholic tradition into their worship through the more regular use of creeds as acts of worship that celebrate God's drama and present the Trinity as the supreme meta-narrative. I'm aware that some Baptists hesitate and even decline to recite the creeds, lest the language or the conceptuality not be their own, whereas faith must indeed be personal. But let me give a counterexample from my own ecumenical experience. In the early 1980s, at the start of the World Council of Churches Faith and Order's Apostolic Faith Study, there was considerable heated debate over the text to be taken as its basis. The Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed was proposed, but that was a contested proposal. It was a Jamaican Baptist with perhaps confessional reservations in face of a text imposed by imperial authority and geographical or cultural doubts about the, the creed's Greek metaphysics. It was a Jamaican Baptist who was one around when he noticed that those who most opposed the use of the Nicene Creed 
were Western liberals, while its employment was advocated by other members of the Commission whose faith in the deity and redemptive work of Christ he shared. Thanks to Horace Russell, that's who it was, the Nicene Creed won the day and it became the basis for confessing the one faith, an ecumenical explication of the ecumenical faith as it is confessed in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. There is a more recent collection of essays. has been by various contributors of various stripes, has been edited by the Baptist theologian Timothy George, Evangelicals and Nicene Faith, Reclaiming the Apostolic Witness. Let me return now to the matter of baptism, faith, and unity as it presented itself since the Lima text. First of all, we notice how in paragraph 12 of that text, the initial document makes the most of the similarities and common features between the two, infant baptism and the baptism of believers. Let me read that text. Both the baptism of believers and the baptism of infants take place in the church as the community of faith. When one who can answer for himself or herself is baptized, a personal confession of faith will be an integral part of the baptismal service. When an infant is baptized, the personal response will be offered at a later moment in life. In both cases, the baptized person will have to grow in the understanding of faith. For those baptized upon their own confession of faith, there is always the constant requirement of a continuing growth of personal response in faith. In the case of infants, Personal confession is expected later, and Christian nurture is directed to the eliciting of this confession. All baptism is rooted in and declares Christ's faithfulness unto death. It has its setting within the life and faith of the church, and through the witness of the whole church, points to the faithfulness of God, the ground of all life in faith. At every, at every baptism, the whole congregation reaffirms its faith in God and pledges itself to provide an environment of witness and service. Baptism should therefore always be celebrated and developed in the setting of the Christian community. Within the initial document of BEM, the commentary to paragraph 12 goes on to hint that the two patterns, whether involving infant baptism or believer's baptism, might be viewed as equivalent alternatives. In some churches, it says, which unite both infant baptism and believer Baptist traditions, it has been possible to regard as equivalent alternatives for entry into the church. Both a pattern whereby baptism in infancy is followed by later profession of faith and a pattern whereby believer's baptism follows upon a presentation and blessing in infancy. This example, it says, invites other churches to decide whether they too could not recognize equivalent alternatives in their reciprocal relationships and church union negotiations. Certainly the responses from the churches revealed an increasing awareness 
that originally there was one complex rite of Christian initiation. And in theological correspondence to that liturgico-historical observation, the churches were increasingly coming to an understanding of initiation as a unitary and comprehensive process, even if its different elements are spread over a period of time, so that the total process vividly embodies the coherence of God's gracious act in eliciting our faith. That's how Maurice West, the British Baptist theologian, and I, a Methodist, were able to formulate the matter when in our capacity as members of the Faith and Order Commission, we were helping to draft the summary account of the church's responses to BEM. On the ecumenical front, we must certainly notice over recent decades a clear tendency among the churches to what we may call the mutual recognition of baptism. A hint, even if it remained in some ways unilateral, can already be found in the Second Vatican Council's ecumenical decree, Unitatis Redintegratio. Concerning Christian brothers and sisters who are not members of the Roman Catholic Church, that ecumenical decree declares that persons who believe in Christ and have been properly baptized are put in some measure of communion, albeit imperfect, with the Catholic Church put in some measure of communion, albeit imperfect, with the Catholic Church. And as to their communities, the brothers and sisters divided from us, it says, also carry out many liturgical actions of the Christian religion in ways that vary according to the condition of each church or community. These liturgical actions most certainly can truly engender a life of grace and, one must say, can aptly give access to the communion of salvation. It follows that the separated churches and communities as such, though we believe they suffer from defects already mentioned, have been by no means deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation. For the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation, which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the Catholic Church. So the Second Vatican Council. What Protestants and their communities chiefly lacked, according to the Roman Catholic view, is a succession in apostolic ministry, focused in the bishops in communion with the Bishop of Rome, with the authority to preach and teach the Christian faith infallibly. Returning now directly to the mutual recognition of baptism, we find the following in paragraph 6 of BEM, where baptism is expounded as incorporation into the body of Christ. Through baptism, it says, Christians are brought into union with Christ, with each other, and with the church of every time and place. Our common baptism, which unites us to Christ in faith, is thus a basic bond of unity. We are one people and are called to confess and serve one Lord in each place and in all the world. However, it was then considered necessary in that text to say, at least as a commentary, 
the inability of the churches mutually to recognize their various practices of baptism as sharing in the one baptism and their actual dividedness in spite of mutual baptismal recognition have given dramatic visibility to the broken witness of the church. The need to recover baptismal unity is at the heart of the ecumenical task as it is central for the realization of genuine partnership within the Christian communities. The matter of mutual recognition of baptism received attention at the Fifth World Conference on Faith and Order held at Santiago de Compostela in Spain in 1993. And in particular, one section of the assembly made the following recommendations. That faith and order put in process for consideration by the churches a way for the mutual recognition of each other's baptism by the churches. That where this is possible but not already done, that the churches develop a common baptismal certificate and that churches invite neighboring churches to participate in baptism in appropriate ways. Baptism has, in fact, figured quite prominently among the topics treated in faith and order since then. The evidence is found in a booklet edited by Thomas F. Best, Baptism Today, Understanding, Practice, Ecumenical Implications. Now, I'm sorry, that's a bigger book. And the, that sets out the current faith and practices. But the complex challenges addressed to the churches then figure in this study text, one baptism towards mutual recognition. Highly significant is the study already contained in the eighth report of the joint working group between the World Council of Churches and the Roman Catholic Church, 2005. Ecclesiological and ecumenical implications of a common baptism. Especially in connection with the divergences over infant baptism, but the areas of dispute are wider, the report recognizes that among issues needing resolution, the questions of the nature and purposes of the church and its role in the economy of salvation. And it notes soberly that the mutual recognition of baptism implies an acknowledgement of each other's baptism, but it in itself is only a step towards full recognition of the apostolicity of the church involved. The question must be put, in any constellation of presently divided churches, among which mutual recognition of baptism exists, what more do you require of the partners and of yourself before you can discern church? Up to now, I've been thinking chiefly of our faith, Faith as a gift from God to us. But we as Christians are not meant to keep this faith to ourselves. It is a gift to be propagated. Listen to this passage from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 15, 13 through 15, where the apostle compares himself and his fellow evangelist Timothy to the psalmist and he says, since we have the same spirit of faith as he had who spoke, who wrote, I believed and so I spoke, we too believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, 
it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Faith is meant to be spoken out, to be rendered in testimony to the gospel so that more and more people may become believers and become incorporated into the Eucharistic assembly, about which I'll be saying more when we arrive at the Lord's Supper. Meanwhile, I simply note, as I come to the end of this first lecture, that the modern ecumenical movement is generally reckoned to date from the World Missionary Conference of Edinburgh, 1910. The World Missionary Conference. And the International Missionary Council was founded in 1921 and became integrated with the World Council of Churches in 1961. From Edinburgh 1910 sprang moreover not only mission and evangelism, one of the streams of the ecumenical movement, but also as a needed consequence, the faith and order stream of ecumenism. Common witness risks disruption if there is division in matters of doctrine or ecclesial structure, which may indeed be a counter-testimony to the gospel. That faith and order, as well as mission and evangelism, belong at the heart of classical ecumenism, may be seen in exemplary fashion from the case of the Church of South India. Formed in 1947 from the organic union of the fruits of missionary labors in the subcontinent of India, the CSI, as it was called, rested on an agreed basis of doctrine and worship, unified structures of ministry and government, and commitment to a vigorously envisaged continuation of indigenous evangelism. So there I draw to an end that first lecture. First virtue, faith, expounded particularly in connection and interaction with baptism and the complications that we face through our divisions in faith and in baptismal practice. And yet the possibility of common faith and commonly accepted practice. Thank you.